This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe for new episodes every Thursday. Now, in this episode, we investigate historic property crime, why it's happening, and what's being done to prevent it. For lovers of history, it's hard to imagine why people would want to destroy the fabric of our past. But it's a problem that English Heritage and Historic England are both working hard to put a stop to, so that sites are preserved for future generations to enjoy. Joining us to discuss these issues on the 10th anniversary of the creation of the Alliance to Reduce Crime Against Heritage, or ARCH, we're joined by two experts in this area. Hello, my name is Mark Harrison, and I'm the Head of Heritage Crime Strategy at Historic England. And hello, I'm Wynne Scott. I'm Properties Curator at English Heritage. Hello to both of you. Thanks for coming on to discuss this issue. Mark, if I could start with you, what is heritage crime exactly? Well, we thought really hard about this uh, 10 years ago, and we actually came up with a formal definition, which says it's any offence, absolutely any offence, So that will take account of current legislation, anything that comes up in the future, which harms the value. And of course, what this means is not just the financial or economic loss, but also the emotional and intangible loss that the impact of these crimes can have. And it's in particular in relation to the heritage assets, so the protected sites and buildings across England and their settings so the areas that they sit in and of course our overall objective is to prevent crime and antisocial behavior so that we leave these wonderful sites and building in as good as or even better condition than they are now for those generations that follow what are the specific problems that historic england and english heritage face perhaps you could answer from the historic england aspects so every three years with our partner agencies, we undertake a, an audit, a strategic threat assessment to understand what are the current and active issues. And over the years, they've remained fairly stable. But the ones that always come to notice are architectural theft, in particular the theft of metal and stone, criminal damage in all of its forms, whether that's vandalism, graffiti, or arson, so criminal damage involving fire, people that interfere with our protected shipwrecks and our military remains, and those people that use metal detecting devices unlawfully, and I must stress there, unlawfully, there are many, many thousands of people that detect as a hobby and comply with the laws and the codes of practice. Antisocial behaviour, and I know this is a, a big issue for Wynne and his team at English Heritage in all of its forms, Charles, whether it's people dumping waste, littering, using vehicles off-road, motorcycles off-road, unlicensed gatherings like raves. And of course, in the dry weather, we had people enjoying barbecues, but not really thinking about the fire risks. So we had lots of fires and some wildlife crimes, people chasing stags and deers using four by fours, going across protected archaeological sites, or people digging up badgers to fight with their dogs. Badgers do tend to like to live in prehistoric burial mounds. And then the crimes committed by the owners 
of protected sites and buildings where they've undertaken works without proper consent. And lastly, and this is an emerging one, is all of the forms of illicit disposal, whether that's through traditional auction houses, online auction sites, or through scrap and recycling dealers. So those are the the sort of main priority areas for us. That's a lot of things to cover, isn't it? It's a multifaceted (laughs) problem. There are lots of things in there which really just disrupt the delicate nature of trying to keep history as it is, even though, of course, it will have changed a lot over time. When you're listening to that, and I suppose there's probably a few more problems that you could add to the list uh, in terms of what English heritage experience... Well, I think Mark's given a great overview, and I, I can really pick out a few that uh, frequently happen. I mean, we get reports, and many of them antisocial behaviour, with people breaking into our sites at night um, yeah. and having parties or whatever. But there's also petty acts of vandalism, bits of graffiti and things like that. Mm. Very occasionally, we get illegal use of metal detectors on our sites. Pretty well all of our sites are scheduled monuments. Yeah. Mark has thousands of scheduled monuments and uh, protected sites to worry about. At English Heritage, <laughs> we just have the cream of the country's oh. uh, uh, heritage, <laughs> which is, which is uh, a little over 400 sites. But even on those, we're getting regular incidents. It, mm. it, it's quite overwhelming what is happening. And we've got people turning up on sites and finding holes dug on their sites or graffiti or that there's evidence of people partying overnight and leaving all sorts of things, you know, sharp drug type things and, uh, and feces and all mm. sorts of ghastly things that our poor staff have to cope with when they arrive in the morning. Yes, it, Charles, it's, it's, it's morale sapping. I can imagine. For, for wind staff. Mm. And of course, we all want people to come and enjoy these wonderful sites. And if the first thing they see is devastation. That's not a very good TripAdvisor report, is it? No, certainly not. And I think you could describe some of that as like, you know, ephemeral, temporary, horrible, but temporary. But there are some things, you know, like fires on sites that are actually damaging the archaeology below. Mm. And we're here to protect that archaeology because it's the only record for hundreds or thousands of years of our past in many cases. So we have to preserve that record. And people don't realise it, but lighting a fire within a prehistoric stone circle or something is Mm. actually frazzling the archaeology (laughs) below. It's destroying the information. And we're here to protect that. And things like car tyres being dumped in an Iron Age hill fort or something like that, or or even um, mountain biking up the ramparts of a 2,000-year-old Iron Age hill fort are destroying that archaeology. They're cutting into that archaeology and destroying it all. And we're trying to protect it for future generations so that one day people with newer techniques will be able to go in and find out new information that we couldn't get through historical records. It can only come from archaeology. So um, it's quite distressing when people damage permanently that archaeology. It's a very good point that Wim makes there in terms of the techniques that are available now that weren't available 10 years ago. So what techniques are going to be available to scientists in 50 years' time? It is a very interesting point. And archaeologists are kind of like the time travellers in a way. 
in some ways, the um, diehard rule of time travel in these science fiction films is don't go back into the past because it will have ripples into the future. But here in the present, as archaeologists, it's kind of like don't do anything in the present as it will have ripple effects in the past and, in this case, underground, where you haven't actually done the work yet. So... I sometimes compare it with uh, the library of the past, in a sense. The layers of soil beneath us preserve that information. And for thousands of years of our past, it's only archaeology that's told that story. You know, lots of people think, oh, it's just written down in a book somewhere. (laughs) It's only in the last hundred years or so that we've actually extracted that information and interpreted it. And we've been finding out things only a couple of hundred years ago they thought that there were giants roamed the land, you know. um, They didn't really understand what prehistory was like in this country. And even for the medieval and industrial past, there was lots of information that isn't written down. History is very, very small and very, very limited. But archaeology is an incredible vehicle to explore, just as we might explore different parts, different Mm. cultures around the world in the present tense, exploring the world today, we're actually going down into the past and exploring thousands of different communities and cultures that have existed over many thousands of years. And that only comes to us through the material evidence that we have to preserve so very, very carefully. Yes. And you've both listed quite clearly there some quite innocuous, perhaps, pastimes that people don't really realise would have a negative effect, like, you know, the mountain biking or... But uh, what are the most destructive problems? Well, illegal metal detecting has been one. And uh, luckily, in recent cases, the perpetrators have been caught. But that is illegal metal detecting. As I said, uh, all our sites are um, scheduled monuments pretty well all. So it is illegal to even take a metal detector out into those without consent. And even I as a trained archaeologist, would find it very difficult to get that kind of consent. It's not the way we do archaeology, digging small holes to extract pieces of metal. Some people have said, why don't you just extract all the metal from the sites? (laughs) But excavation, archaeological, proper scientific excavation, is very expensive. We've just spent a quarter of a million on an excavation that's intangible. It's really quite a small area. But you need to spend that kind of money to extract all the information with modern techniques out of that thing. A detectorist uh, working illegally on a protected site can destroy all that information in half an hour of digging little holes and destroying all that, all the context. Um, as I said, the antisocial behaviour on our sites is more temporary. But as Mark says, it's very upsetting. Yes. What are the most difficult to rectify? I suppose it would be the metal detecting, wouldn't it? Because it's destroying the archaeology in little pockets as the offender digs down. Yes, that's probably the worst. But uh, Mark mentioned how owners of sites, this doesn't apply to us, but there was a case a few years ago with some henge monuments where the owner actually bulldozed part of a, a henge monument. And this sort of thing does happen, even by owners. And that is completely irreparable. And we don't have many roofs <laughs> on our sites, but Mark often talks about the lead theft. And we have had a few incidents of English heritage of lead theft. Well, you'd think, well, we can replace the lead. It's expensive. But what happens is that it's often done in wet weather and the rain pours into the building and it does irreparable damage that way. And quite apart from the uh, having to replace the lead roof with a modern roof, you know. Yes, you've, you've lost the sort of authenticity then, haven't you? Indeed, yes. 
and fires and graffiti too. We've had some graffiti on some of our sites in the past. It might be on stone circles. It might be on medieval buildings, castles and things like that. And we have to use very expensive techniques, poultices, they're called, which you kind of stick to the wall to try to extract all those modern chemicals and paints out of the wall. But even then, there's often a shadow left, and that's permanent. Even though we might get most of the graffiti out at great expense, there's still some damage left. So people forget what just five minutes of, of reckless graffiti can have over permanently, over hundreds of years. Yes. So we've outlined really the main issues, and I think a lot of people will be quite surprised to hear just how much damage can be caused very quickly by people just not really thinking. So as we've mentioned in the introduction, the Alliance to Reduce Crime Against Heritage is now 10 years old. How does it work to reduce heritage crime, Mark? Well, I got uh, a call in 2010. I was a senior police officer in Kent Police, and I got a call to say, we understand you know something about archaeology. And uh, they offered me the position to become policing advisor to English heritage, as we were back then. And our objective was to pull together a strategic partnership and also try and understand and assess the scale and extent of the problem. So the first part was to work with, as it was back then, the Association of Chief Police Officers and the Crown Prosecution Service and ourselves to pull together a formal memorandum of understanding. That was signed in 2011. And it was an agreement to work together as a collaborative partnership to, wherever possible, prevent crime. And that will always be the primary objective, to prevent crime and antisocial behaviour. And where crimes were committed, how we would work together as a team to investigate those problems, identify the offender and to bring them to account. Now, whether that's a prosecution or another form of intervention, it doesn't matter. It's just taking some action. So, yeah, been very successful. For some of these sites, they'll be out in the countryside, potentially, with mm. um, no surveillance. And some of them might not even be manned either. Some mm-hmm. of the smaller sites, for example, but they are yeah. English heritage sites. You, you'll see the sign as you walk in and there might be a few information panels to tell you about um, the property or wh- whatever it is. So how does one go about protecting these sites from a practical point of view when there isn't potentially the manpower or the cameras to catch people in the act? Well, it's extremely difficult for us at English Heritage because our sites are so so well known and so famous. You can't go around putting sort of chain link fences around them, you know, and we haven't got the staff to do 24-hour surveillance. We do at Stonehenge, but all our other sites, it's very difficult. We're having to put a lot more CCTV in, and we're having to employ security patrols at some sites where antisocial behaviour is right. For example, somewhere like Barry Pomeroy Castle in Devon, to try to, to control the sort of overnight break-ins. But it, it is all about partnerships in the end, rather than cameras or, or fences. It's all about working with the local community and the police force to try to get everybody with their eyes open. And we really need our English Heritage members and all our supporters to be on the lookout and to be aware of what is heritage crime and to know how to report it. If anybody is committing an offence against a heritage asset, 
you know, it might be graffiti or it might be illegal use of a metal detector, they should call the police if it's actually happening at the time on 999. You know, people don't realise that this is a serious illegal offence. Well, many people don't realise, but we're trying to educate people and, uh, and make people understand that we need them to be our eyes on the ground. One of the fantastic outcomes of setting Arch up has been, and I've just totaled it up, since we started, we've trained 12,000 practitioners and members of community groups, whether they're historians or archaeologists or bird watchers. And as Wynne says, we need people to be our eyes and ears. And that's why seven years ago, we set up the Heritage Watch scheme, working with Neighbourhood Watch, which has been working in our communities now for, what, 40 years? Heritage Watch is now part of Neighbourhood Watch. It's operating in six areas across the country, and we're looking to expand that. So as Wynne says, giving people the knowledge, the awareness, and the confidence to call in, whether it's suspicious behaviour or intelligence or actually reporting a crime in action, that's really the only way we can understand what's going on. And then working with chief constables, police and crime commissioners, and rural crime teams across the country, again, raising their awareness and getting them to understand that these are aggravated offences. These are special offences relating to protected sites. And of course, in that way, they belong to all of us. You know, we have a relatively short lifetime as human beings. So we are the temporary guardians of these sites. We need to ensure that they're protected now so that our ancestors get to see what we're enjoying now. Yes, and that future archaeology can take place as well when technology improves as it inevitably will. Yeah. Could you give a few recent examples of heritage crimes? Yeah. Well, I'm just sitting here today. I've written two letters to highlight the ongoing issue of people stealing our wonderful Royal Mail post boxes. We had a series of boxes go in Suffolk last week. And then over the weekend, we've had shocking reports, you know, shocking reports of people stealing Yorkstone paving and headstones, you know, grave markers that belong to people's ancestors from the churchyard. What on earth is the market for a personal gravestone? If anyone's got the answer to that, please let me know. Yeah, that's a strange well, one. I guess, I guess they place it face down and use it as a patio. I don't know. <laughs> yes, but you need obviously uh, several of them in order to put, uh, make a patio in itself. Yeah. It's tragic and it's so offensive, isn't it? Um, apart from the loss of historical knowledge and, uh, and setting. Uh, it, it's really, really ghastly. And yeah, so many of these crimes are acquisitive, you know, like the stealing of paving, often from really important historic sites and suddenly you find all the lovely old flagstones have gone overnight you know just like lead disappearing from roofs yeah. you know it's just just you, terrible when can you imagine the impact of someone going to visit their ancestor's grave and finding it's not there mm -hmm. yeah and this is why we were so delighted to work with the sentencing council when they were reviewing their guideline for theft and handling stolen goods and we made the point that these are special crimes. And they agreed. 
So if you are convicted of stealing a heritage asset like a church roof or, or a gravestone and you plead guilty or you're found guilty, you are liable to an uplift. But of course, we've got to make sure that the prosecutor and the courts are aware that it's a heritage crime so that that sentence can be appropriately issued. Are you hopeful, Mark, that there will be some resolutions to these crimes that you've outlined, the theft of the Royal Mail post boxes and the headstone? Yeah, and we're making big efforts here. So for the last two years, Historic England has funded a crime intelligence analyst uh, and she sits in OPAL, which is the National Intelligence Unit for Acquisitive Crime. So anything that's stolen and sold on the unlawful markets And Charlotte is really starting to help us bring together the whole picture. So who's doing it? Where are they doing it? Where do we need to focus our resources? And if prosecution is a measure of success, then we have been successful. We have prosecuted a lot of people over the last 10 years, substantial sentences, and just as important, the seizure of their personal assets using the Proceeds to Crime Act. So as you've described, once something is taken, certainly from the theft perspective of heritage Mm. crime, then detectives and investigators can start putting the feelers out, uh, getting intelligence, scanning the auction sites, speaking Mm -hmm. to auction houses, uh, this sort of thing, and and start interrupting the economic aspect of this. And as Wynne says, it's not just crimes in action. But it can be someone seeing something on e- on one of the electronic auction sites, uh, not just eBay, but Gumtree and other sites are available, and calling it in. It's only through working with the public that we really get to identify these people. And I guess we've got to look at uh, international trade, which is what Charlotte mm. does, isn't it, through Opal. I guess some of these post boxes might be going abroad. I can't imagine you know, what people would do with them in this country, really, 100-year-old post boxes. Yeah. But- from King George, you know. But there's also the stuff coming in, isn't there, from abroad. There's heritage crime in the traffic of antiquities that have come mm. from, from Greece and Bulgaria and places like that that have been illegally dug and are being smuggled into this country for sale, either here or going on to other countries. So there's, there is a... What kind of figure would you put it on? Multi-million? Multi-billion? Yeah, I mean, if we, if we look at... Uh recent United Nations reports, they put it right up there alongside drugs, wildlife crime and gun crime, don't they? Yeah, it's big business for some people. And some of some of the detectorists we know that have been working on schedule sites in, in Britain, the illegal detectorists, that's a very small minority, they are working to often to, to smuggle things abroad because it's quite difficult to sell these very high value items, I think, in England. You know, if it's Viking jewellery or something like that. You might want to describe the Herefordshire hoard issue, Mark. Yes, Mark, tell us about this. Yeah, so it's become known as the Herefordshire hoard because this wonderful assemblage of jewellery and coins from the period of King Alfred was found by detectorists on land, not protected land, but farmland where they didn't have permission. And it was the find of a lifetime. Unfortunately. They did not report that to the landowner or the coroner. They did make some half-hearted attempts to report it, and they then engaged two dealers to try and 
launder their fines, to sell their fines and convert that into money. And that's where they came unstuck because we got the report. And after a series of search warrants, those four offenders were brought to account at Worcester Crown Court in 2019, where they received over 20 years imprisonment between them. In fact, one of the offenders, the principal detectorist, received the maximum penalty that you can receive for theft. So we've gone from 10 years ago when we were told pretty much that unlawful metal detecting or night hawking, as some people refer to it, was a civil matter. This was nothing to do with the police. And we said, well, no, this is theft. And it's theft not just from the landowner, it's theft from all of us. And I think that case really does prove that. Yes, you can mm. you can see that there's a lot of offences taking place within that offence. You know, it's not just theft; it's trespassing, I suppose, onto the landowner's land. It's mm-hmm. not uh, obtaining the correct permissions and license in order yeah. to carry out the metal detecting, yeah. and of course, it's um, as you say, theft from the historical community, archaeologists stealing archaeological work in a way to investigate these important things about our past. So it's multi-layered, isn't it? It is. And, and there's one thing to add, even if they find, had found that on a non-protected site, I think, I think that's right, isn't it, actually, Mark, isn't it? Mm. That it, it wasn't a protected site, no. but if you find a, a hoard of, of um, valuable items like this, it comes under the Treasure Act and you have to report it. It belongs yeah. to the Crown and yeah. it has to go be reported to the coroner. So it does mean that if they had reported it properly, yeah. rather than getting 20 years of prison sentence, and if they had got the permission of the lander mm-hmm. it was theft, they could have actually received a, a reward, the estimated value of their fines. So uh, they could have actually benefited quite yeah. well from it if they had reported it. Which would have been, in this case, Charles, millions. It's a, it's a real um, lesson in doing it the right way, isn't it? Yeah. There's a comparison here. Just over 10 years ago, there was a, a similar but younger hoard found in Staffordshire in a potato field near Litchfield, where the detectorist had full permission to be on the land. And he found, again, a find of a lifetime. That's become known as the Staffordshire hoard. But Terry did the right thing. He notified the landowner. He notified the coroner through the portable antiquity scheme which is administered by the british museum and the police and then over a series of years there has been proper excavation and analysis not just of the finds but of the find spot so there is an argument to say that an unprotected site where you find something unexpectedly might have more information than something we know about you know, many of Wynne's sites that he looks after from English Heritage, you have excavated them, haven't you, Wynne? Yeah, small parts of some of our sites, yeah, yeah but there's still a, a lot more that we're trying to leave unexcavated for future yeah. generations, yeah. The question I mean, I is, it, how hmm. many of these hoards are being found and not disclosed? Now, we do know that through the Port of Antiquity Scheme and looking at their database, that the thousands of law-abiding detectors are making some extraordinary discoveries. But it's those ones that we're, we're missing, and those are the ones that we're focusing on. And the best way to report these ones, of course, is as they did in the Jersey Hort, you know, that wonderful mm. collection of, uh, oh, yeah. I think it was 70,000 yeah. <laughs> Iron Age coins from, mm. that had been brought across from France back in the Iron Age, but around about the time of the Roman invasions. 
that has just recently been valued. I forgot the actual, it's about four million pounds that mm-hmm. they've that, yeah, uh, so, yeah. it's been valued valued at. And the two finders there, Reg and Richard, who've subsequently become good friends of mine, actually, uh, they followed it exemplarily. As they came down on top of the hoard, they didn't carry on digging. Mm-hmm. They brought the archaeologists in so that all the information that could possibly be extracted was if a detectorist had carried on pulling out all those coins out of the ground and filled a sack with them, most of the information would have been lost. But they reported it as soon as they came down so yeah. it could be properly archaeologically excavated. So yeah. that's what should have been done with the Staffordshire Hall, to be honest, you know, because we would have so much more information about it. But uh, in Jersey, they just did exactly the right thing. That was about to be my next question, really, which was, you know, if any metal detectorists are listening and have permissions and, and all the rest of it and have spoken to landowners, yeah. what is the best approach? So clearly that is the best approach. Do, do, you know, do your survey, but if you get one of those high-pitched squeals, um, perhaps <laughs> you know, mark the spot with something, a little flag or something. Go and talk to the landowner, and um, and then go and contact, I suppose, your local archaeology team or or, or the yes. county the county archaeology department. Well, we make a distinction between stratified and unstratified things that are in the topsoil in in the plough soil are basically not in layers. There's just one mixed layer. But once you get below plough plow soil, that's where it can become really sensitive. And so if you dig below plough soil level, which I'd urge people not to, but if they come across, say, an Anglo-Saxon cruciform brooch or something like that, rather than pulling it out of the ground and sort of putting on the mantelpiece as a piece of treasure and reporting it to the Portable Antiquities scheme, of course, but leave it in the ground because it might be part of a cemetery, an Anglo-Saxon cemetery. And, you know, pulling out the metal artifacts is actually wrecking the graves and wrecking all the archaeology. So I'm all for people working on beaches and in plough soil. But once you get below that, that's where you're hitting really Careful. important, sensitive archaeology. Careful about beaches when some of them, well, have, some of them have bylaws, local authority bylaws. And obviously the Crown Estate looks after beaches. So people need to check local websites and what, Queen has described for you, Charles, is the code of practice for responsible metal detecting, which people can find online. We always recommend that people maybe join their local club and that will help them with liability insurances and help them to understand written permissions. And over the autumn, we did some evening classes with, I think we had about 150 detectorists online talking about how they could become our eyes and ears in the countryside because these people get into extraordinarily isolated rural locations where a police officer is never going to get. So giving them the confidence of what crimes to look out for, not just um, night hawking, but all types of rural crime. And we discussed some of those earlier on and who to call and what to say. And if they want to be anonymous, then use the Crime Stopper system. And I had the pleasure last week of being part of the launch for the Horseback Volunteers Scheme in Wiltshire. And they are wearing their Heritage Watch high visibility vests. So again, they've been given the awareness that on their walks with their horses, what to look out for and who to call. That's all very reassuring, actually. And it goes to show that there are eyes and ears out in the countryside looking out for some of these crimes. 
the passion for the past amongst our communities. And of course, Wynne's told you about the 420 sites that English Heritage look after, but there are 400,000, more than 400,000 protected sites and buildings in England alone. And the vast majority of those are owned by the public. So giving them good advice, good support, how to help them if they are victimised, it's key to everything that we do. One of the most important points there is about public land, actually, because mm. I get lots of questions from metal detectors saying, oh, can I go and detect in my public park? Or mm. there's all sorts of public land alongside ro- roadways and things, you know, and, or beaches and things. What they don't realise is that every single inch of Britain, including the coastline and the beaches, yeah. belongs to somebody. And they say, oh, that must be, that's public land. Or if I go up and down, well, that's all public. It's not, you know, it's, uh, it's all private land, every inch. So you're, you're stealing from someone. It might be from your local authority or it might be from the government or something, but you're stealing from someone if you go without permission. Yeah, we've had to do a lot of work recently with the emerging hobby of magnet fishing. So this is a, a novel way of using a metal detecting device because a magnet is a metal detector. But these are very, very powerful magnets and people are fishing in canals and rivers. Not only are they doing it without permission, but they're bringing up noxious chemicals. They're bringing up dangerous objects, in particular, live ordnance, hand grenades. Uh, We've had handguns. But where it's a protected site, we're also saying to them, I'm sorry, not only do you need landowner's permission but as a scheduled monument it's only historic england that can give you a license so we've got to do a big education piece on that charles yeah so tell us a bit more about these laws on metal detecting and and this issue of needing a license what do you have to do if you want to be a metal detectorist the vast majority of metal detecting is done on arable farmland and within those uh, farming landscapes there will be protected sites like Roman villas or Anglo-Saxon cemeteries that will have a statutory protection around them. And we call that scheduling, so scheduled monuments. Even the landowner cannot give a detectorist or an archaeologist permission to do works on that site or metal detect on that site without a license from Historic England. And as Wynne said earlier on, the only way we would issue that license is if it was part of a structured archaeological research project, and they're very rare. But the vast, overwhelming majority of detectorists are detecting on farmland with the owner's permission, and in many, many cases, that's with written permission. And in England, you don't need a you don't need a license to do that, do you? No. Um, no. In in many other countries, you do. In mm-hmm. many countries, detecting is illegal. Or I believe in Scotland, you can't actually detect to look for antiquities. Yeah. And different laws in Wales and in Northern Ireland. So, um, you know, we've just been talking about England only. Mm-hmm. So, if anybody's listening from any other country, be aware that the regs might yeah. be completely different. Yeah. In fact, in Northern Ireland, you need a permit just to search for any form of archaeological objects whether it's with a detector or not even so if you're just field walking you need a permit right we talked earlier about this portable antiquities scheme and you gave Mm. a brief overview but could you just describe in a bit more detail what that is because it's voluntary isn't it it's the voluntary portable antiquities scheme 
Well, yeah, the Portable Antiquities Scheme was set up as a voluntary scheme some years ago by the British Museum with support from the Heritage Lottery Fund. And basically every county has a fines liaison officer who you can report your fines to and Mm. get things identified. They're incredibly helpful. Mm. You have to be patient sometimes because they do receive a lot of material and there's usually only one of them. But they have a great, fantastic knowledge. And if they don't know, they know a network of experts they can go to and they can help you out. They're not going to steal your objects. They're not going to take them off you. It's entirely up to you if you, if, you know, if you want to give it to a museum, which would be wonderful, but at least they record it photographically and drawing, and they might even publish it if it's an important find. That's kind of separate. And a lot of detectorists to confuse this. That's separate from the treasure trove, you know, from having to report treasure. There's a strict definition of treasure, which you can find on the internet. But basically, we're talking about hoards of gold or silver, you know, high value items, you know, that are over 300 years old. But there's a strict definition there. Those things you have to notify the coroner within 14 days. Otherwise, you're breaking the law. That's right. Um, but with the Portable Antiquity Scheme, it's just very friendly. It's just up to you to take things along, get them recorded, and then you can take them away again. Right. Yeah. And we've talked earlier about the severe consequences for metal detectorists who can face imprisonment and several years behind bars. I know there's another group, the Beeston Five. This is at Beeston <laughs> Castle <laughs> in Cheshire. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't realise they'd got uh, a name. Yes, well, uh, m- maybe, I've, maybe I've sort of journalistically called them the Beeston <laughs> no, Five. No, I call them the Beeston Five as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yes, I do. It's probably come from me. But they were caught, I know. And it's not just, I don't think they faced imprisonment, did they? But what were the other punishments when they were eventually caught after detecting at Beeston Castle in Cheshire? Yeah, well, this is a group of of men from Manchester. They hadn't been involved in metal detecting before, but they decided that they would have a go. They identified some sites, one of them being Beeston Castle in Cheshire, and they travelled from home to the site where they detected and they found objects from the Bronze Age deposits. Now, when what's the Bronze Age? About four, four and a half thousand years ago? Yeah, basically from about 800 BC to 2400 BC. A really important object. Yeah. Uh, and it's an incredibly important prehistoric site there. So they took those objects, they tried to sell them. That intelligence then came in to the police and then working together as a partnership. Now, bearing in mind this was during the, the first lockdown, things were difficult but we got to a point where we identified the suspects and using search warrants we undertook a series of uh, morning raids and brought those people into custody where they were interviewed and they were charged with a variety of offenses theft causing damage to the protected archaeology the scheduled monuments at Beeston and as part of the investigation for the first time we actually undertook some analysis of the soil that was still inside one of the Bronze Age axes. So this is like a socketed axe, so it's hollow. And the scientists were able to find geology and biology that matched to the scene. Now, they actually pleaded guilty. We didn't need to use that in a trial. But of course, I think that went towards them pleading guilty at the first occasion and as, as we hear, they received a big fine, lost all of their equipment, and we applied for what we call a criminal behaviour order. Now, these used to be called 
antisocial behavior orders, ASBOs. And these are very powerful. These are a directive and controlling injunction which sets out a list of prohibitions of things that you cannot do. And if you do break those prohibitions, then you're liable to a further sanction. But what's nice about them is it sets out very clearly what you can't do. And if you obey that, then there is no further trouble for you. And we do use these in a number of cases. Mm. So broadly speaking, for yeah. that case, it was, I think, six, nearly £6,000 in fines across the group of five people, yeah. some other court costs and bans from historic sites in England and Wales. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Of course, they have a criminal record as well. Of course. That, you know, that can affect your employment yeah. prospects and, and everything. And, and uh, when, you're, um, you know, when you're sitting at home one day with your family mm. and suddenly the police are bashing down the door with a search warrant, Basically, Cheshire Police put this online, the video of the van. I think uh, a large number of police officers were involved with the Mm. raids at all these different properties in Manchester. And, of course, the embarrassment, I guess, that's an understatement, isn't it, for those perpetrators with their families. You know, what have you been doing? We thought you were just going out doing some instant metal detecting. Oh, no, you've been hitting scheduled sites, and you may well go go to prison or at least you'll get a, a criminal record. The consequences are really quite severe of, uh, of stepping over the line. Psychological impact is enormous. And of course, the message for those people that are detecting and complying with the law, it sends them a very clear message that if you share your intelligence with us, we will do something about it. Absolutely. And I think um, as these cases, these more serious cases that we've uh, identified, they really do prove that the law will catch up with you. Well, if we're talking about the law will catch up with you, one of our cases was a serving police officer. Really? um, From Norfolk. And he had written permission. He had been working on this land with the landowner for many years. But he made this amazing discovery of coins from the Anglo-Saxon period, the coins probably associated with the royal family at the Sutton Hoo ship burial site. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he sold them. (laughs) And he was caught. Now, not only did he go to jail and get a proceeds of crime confiscation order of £16,000, but he lost his job. And the detecting community had been saying to us, if we told you about a police officer, would you do anything about it? Well, of course, the answer was always yes. But this one really showed that we would do something. So no one is exempt. I think that's a very clear example. What does the future hold for the prevention of heritage crime? It sounds as though that you've got the community aspect, you've got the law-abiding detectorists working with you. You know, there's lots of things going on within the alliance itself. What's the future hold? Well, Wynn and I have been working together closely for many years now. We had an amazing day a couple of years ago down at Avebury, where we had 50 practitioners from the National Trust, English Heritage, police services across the country undertaking some of that training we spoke about earlier on. But as we move forward into the next 10 years, then how are we going to get better? So I think we've shown that making investments into analysis, we're going to do that. We're going to train more people. We're going to expand and enhance the Heritage Watch program. 
working closer with our police and crime commissioners and where we can uh, encourage them to put heritage and the historic environment into their police and crime plans. And I'm delighted to report that we've had a note from Essex and from Lincolnshire that they've done just that. So I think the commitment is there and these are challenging times for everyone, financially and emotionally, but I think we can make an impact. And lastly, for both of you, what can we do as English Heritage members or visitors, uh, walkers, to help reduce the impact of heritage crime? Well, I think it's becoming better aware and training up people, um, mm. sharing that information with people. Um, even detectives, most detectives help us enormously. Yes. They provide terrific information and most of them are law-abiding. We don't want to give the impression that detecting is it's a criminal offence all the time, you know. So many detectives are reporting their fines to the Portable Antiquity Scheme, and they work with us. But heritage crime, yes, we need people on the ground to become familiar with the local sites, in their parish, in their city, wherever they are, to know that that particular lump in that field is a protected <laughs> site, for example, you know. Or there's a Roman, Roman villa down the road that is a scheduled monument, something like that, to be aware of those and to share that information with your community and say, look, this is really important, not just to us in our generation, but to future generations. Yeah. We must all look out and look after this particular monument or all of these monuments. Every parish in the country yeah, ha great. will have a few of these monuments. And it's all about education. And, and it's educating detectorists to be better detectorists. It's educating the community to report crimes like graffiti and things like that and to be our eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah, and to help people, Historic England has produced an online guide for people. It's called the National Heritage List for England, and it actually lists every single uh, protected site and building and shipwreck in England. Uh, you can use it as a map, or you can use it as a list, and it shows you where they are in your local community. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be doing some more detective work as we investigate the surprise discovery of Native American artifacts at Audley End House in Essex. Straight away, she suggested I speak to someone of indigenous heritage who could not only help to determine how and when they might have been acquired, but someone who could explain their cultural significance and meanings. Thanks for listening. See you next time.